we'll get back to that hopefully in a few minutes. But uh, I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Psalm 85. This morning, Psalm 85. Can we live with contradiction? Can we live with contradiction? This was the title of an opinion piece in the New York Times from a little over a year ago. In it, the author tries to explain how people can say they believe one thing and then live as if they believe the opposite. He uses the example of philosopher Peter Singer, who taught that the life of a mentally impaired human being was worth less than that of a chicken, speaking of chickens. In Singer's defense, that might surprise you that I would say this, but in Singer's defense, I will say that this is the logical outworking of his naturalistic and evolutionary worldview. That a person who is mentally impaired is of no value, in fact, less value than a chicken. But what's interesting, and what makes this a contradiction, is that even while Singer was teaching this, it was discovered that his mother suffered from Alzheimer's. And what do you think Peter Singer did with his money? Did he spend his money rescuing chickens? No. He spent his money taking care of his mother. So this man who said that presumably someone suffering from Alzheimer's was worth less than a chicken didn't actually live that way. Now, this is a contradiction. And I believe that it can be explained by the conflict between Singer's nature as a human being created in the image of God and his willful rebellion against his creator, his desire to live apart from his creator God. And so he lived in contradiction. Now, it's possible, then, for us to live with contradiction. And the author of this article that I read apparently lacked the moral framework of a biblical worldview that helps to make sense of this. And so he spent several hundred words trying to come up with a theory to explain how people can live with contradiction. And he ended up his article basically by saying this, everybody does it, and we just need to cut ourselves some slack because there's probably no way to avoid living with contradiction. Well, as you can probably guess, I didn't find his thoughts all that helpful on this subject. But they do illustrate, I think, that how when we try to resolve contradictions in our thinking and behavior as humans, when we try to resolve this ourselves, we often end up just throwing our hands up and trying to kind of live with it because we don't see how it will work out. We, if we needed another illustration, it provides us with an illustration of our limited perspective as human beings. 
There are many things that we simply cannot reconcile from our perspective. We can't see how those things fit. And it's helpful for us to have another perspective, especially when we have the advantage of having God's perspective on something. And so I say this as a way of illustrating or introducing, rather, this passage of Scripture that I'd like to study with you today. Psalm 85 is a very interesting song that begins as a hymn of praise, and then it, it kind of turns into a protest psalm, and then by the end, it it ends up being a psalm of trust in Yahweh. But the whole psalm is really focused on an apparent contradiction. Look with me at verse 10. And I want you to see this. We're going to start in verse 10, and then we're going to try to go back and look at the context of the psalm. Verse 10 says this, Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed. As we observe this verse, there are, I think, two uh, apparent contradictions found here in this verse. And I'd like to kind of spell them out for you. The first one is this. If God is merciful toward sinners... How can he also be true? This is an apparent contradiction. How can God be merciful towards sinners and still be true? Wouldn't truth demand that sinners be punished, not enjoy mercy? So there's one apparent contradiction. The psalmist says, mercy and truth have met together. And yet it would seem that mercy and truth really cannot coexist in light of the fact that we as human beings are sinful. The second contradiction is this, or apparent contradiction is this, when he says righteousness and peace have kissed. Because if God is righteous, how can he be at peace with sinners? How can God be righteous and be at peace with sinners? Wouldn't his righteousness demand that God be angry with those who are unrighteous? And so we have here a couple of apparent contradictions. And I stress that they are apparent contradictions. Because I believe that there is no contradiction here at all in reality. But we're going to see, I hope I, can, I hope I can show you today, we have hopefully be able to get through it, to show you why and how these things fit together in the Lord. But before we do that, I would like to pray and ask his help as we study his word together. Heavenly Father, again, we are coming to you this morning mindful of the fact that we are studying your word. Lord, above everything else, we want to handle your word carefully. We want to deal with the truth, honestly and fairly. And Lord, we want to receive the Scriptures as they truly are, the Word of God. And so I pray that you would help us 
to do that. Help us to humble ourselves and submit to the truth that is taught here in these verses. That we might come in line with your will. And Lord, I pray that you would use me to speak your truth. Use me to illustrate and to, to explain it in such a way that it is easily understood. And in a way that it can have a dynamic and changing impact in our lives. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said, these are apparent contradictions. God's mercy and truth. How can they meet together? His righteousness and His peace. How can they kiss? Well, I'd like for us to consider how the psalmist sees this. And so I'd like for you to go with me back to the beginning of the psalm because, as I said, this psalm is really, it really kind of progresses in sections. And I, we're going to consider it in four different parts today and, and, and hopefully, as I said, hopefully be able to illustrate all of this as we go and, and make it very clear to you. But the, psalm, uh, the psalmist deals with this kind of in four sections or by, by taking four steps. How is it that he comes to this conclusion? Because verse 10 is really kind of a part of his conclusion. It's part of the result of what has taken place and where he ends up. That he concludes that God's mercy and his truth have met together, that his righteousness and his peace have kissed, that they are in harmony with one another. But how does he come to that conclusion? And, and there's a very practical need here. Let me just uh, try, to, try to, to, to consider this. There's some of these elements of the psalm. We said before that many of the psalms don't have a, a great deal of, of information about the setting of the psalm. It's not easy for us necessarily to say, well, this was what was taking place. This was the historical circumstances. And this psalm is no different. Uh, This psalm does speak of a return from captivity uh, in verse 1. And so it's traditionally, I think, been understood as a psalm that was written probably during the time of the return from the exile. Uh, And that's probably the most popular opinion about the timing of the psalm, that it was written by the people you know, who came back with Ezra and Zerubbabel and Joshua the priest and Nehemiah and those people in that time period who came back from Babylon and from Persia. They came back to Jerusalem. They came back to Judah to live there and to rebuild. And so they had experienced a tremendous uh, blessing from God that God had allowed them to return back to the land of their heritage and yet they faced a great number of difficulties. And when they arrived back in the land, there were enemies, there were opponents, there were threats, there were spiritual challenges that they faced. And so uh, it wasn't just smooth sailing. And so this psalm may reflect some of the circumstances that these people went through as they came back and then tried to get about the process of rebuilding, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city, rebuilding their lives, and ultimately uh, rebuilding the land. Um, but I say that, and, and I just say that, that there's no way to confirm that that's the exact, with any certainty, that that's the exact setting here. And it may just be speaking in very general terms. There were other times where Israel suffered captivity on a smaller scale. 
You could read the book of Judges and over and over and over again, the people in, on a smaller scale were taken captive and held captive by other nations. And so there have been many times in the history of Israel when this could apply. And so I don't think it really matters per se because, again, uh, there, there's a princip- some principles here that go way beyond any particular circumstance. So l- let's consider this, right? The first thing that the psalmist does, I want you to, to, to go with me there, the verse verses. The first thing the psalmist deals with here, verses 1 through 3, he says this, Lord, Yahweh, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin, Salah. You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. The first thing that the psalmist does when he's, he, he's in this circumstance, and we're going to see here as we go what, the, what his present circumstance is like. But the first thing he does at the beginning of the psalm is he's reflecting back. He's remembering the saving past. He's remembering God's salvation in the past. What had God done previously? And he says, you have been favorable to your land. Now that's important for us to note that in verse 1. He comments here, you've been favorable to the land. Why is that important? Because for the Israelites, the land of Israel, the land of Canaan, that land that we call Palestine, that land was promised by God. God had given promises all the way back in the days of Abraham that he was going to give him not only descendants, but he was going to give his descendants a land. And that land was part of the promise from God. And so here the psalmist speaks about that. So clearly this psalm fits within the Israelite context. God had been favorable to the land. And that's not really surprising at all. God promised to them the land. He promised to be favorable to them in the land. And there were a lot of Really, really, I would put it this way. Let me put it this way in my thinking here. That the condition of the land of Israel in, the ancient, in ancient Israel, and, and I make that distinction. I'm not talking about Israel today as much as I'm talking about Israel in the ancient times. But the, the condition of the land of Israel and its prosperity and its uh, wellness as a land is kind of like a spiritual thermometer. It shows us or gives us an idea of the spiritual condition of the Israelites. Because as they were in the land, if they were faithful, God blessed the land for their sake. And if they were disobedient, then God cursed the land for their sake. In fact, their, even their, the, fact, the very fact that they dwelled in the land was an indication of Blessing and favor by God. All right, there's, there's reference to this in the book of Leviticus. And I believe it's chapter 17. Or I'm sorry, chapter 18. In Leviticus 18, the, the, 
the Lord speaks this to the people through the prophet Moses. And he says this, Do not defile yourselves with any of these things. And these things refers to all sorts of sexual immorality that has been described in the preceding verses. It's all sorts of, of corrupt and perverse behaviors that God describes here and says, Don't do these things. Do not defile yourselves with these things. And notice what he says. For... By all these, the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled. Therefore, I visit the punishment of its iniquity upon it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. The land is an indication here, an indicator of the spiritual condition of the inhabitants. God says, that they are so defiled and therefore they have so defiled the land that the land is going to vomit them out. That's a lovely picture, isn't it? But if we keep reading in this chapter, Leviticus 18, down to verse uh, uh, 27 or 26, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and shall not commit any of these abominations either any of your own nation or any stranger who dwells among you. And here's what he says in verse 28. Lest the land vomit you out also when you defile it, as it vomited out the nations that were before you. He says very clearly that the land and their continued living in it and blessing in the land is an indication of their spiritual condition. And so, for Israel, the psalmist is writing within Israel in the context of this group of people that God has specifically chosen as his people in Israel. And he says, the land is the indicator. And and the psalmist says to the Lord in the opening line of the verse, Yahweh, you have been favorable. You have been gracious toward your land. And then he balances that with a parallel line in the second half of the verse. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. See, Israel being able to dwell in the land is an indication of God's favor and blessing on them. When they sin, when they follow the the other nations into idolatry and immorality, God punished them in part by... It's to, to an extreme by removing them from the land. The fact that he allowed them to return is simply the favor of God, the grace of God. Because here at this point, the psalmist is recognizing that there have been times in the past when these people have completely blown it and have completely ruined everything that God has given them and had to be removed from the land. And the reason that happens, according to Scripture, is that they defiled the land by their own immorality. And the land spewed them out. So the psalmist says, Lord, you have been favorable to us. So it's connected here to the land. And for Israel, that's important. Now, I keep saying for Israel. And the reason I say that is I want to make a distinction. I want us to understand right from the get-go that this distinction of the land... And God's favorability toward the land is unique to the nation of Israel at this time. 
And so we cannot take that statement and somehow apply it ourselves. And of course, I know this being Memorial Day weekend, uh, there's, there's a great uh, desire among some people to say, you know, we want God to bless our land. How are we going to get God to bless our land? And I would simply caution us that we do not have the claim that Israel had with God. God had promised them, I'm going to give you this land, and then you obey me, and I'm going to bless you in this land. And if you disobey me, I'm going to remove you from this land. And that's what's going to happen. Their spiritual condition and favor with God was connected to the land. Ours, as New Testament believers, if you're born again today, a member of the church, we do not have the promise of a land And so we, even as Americans, cannot claim this and say, well, we want God to be favorable to our land, so let's follow the prescriptions here. That's not a valid application of this. Let's be careful that we don't get this confused. The land is speaking about the land of Israel. But clearly, the psalmist has in mind what God has done in the past. God has been favorable. God has been gracious to them. He has granted them His favor. Now, how could God do that? How could God grant them favor? Look at verse 2. You have forgiven, he says, the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sins. This is important because he says, you've been favorable to the land. You turn back to captivity of your people. These are all temporal things. These are physical things. But here's here's the basis for it. It's on a spiritual basis. God has forgiven their iniquity. When you see that word iniquity, think moral perversion, moral twistedness. It's that, it's that internal twisting of our soul that causes us to take things that are good and to abuse them and turn them into things that are evil. That's what he says. And he says, God, you have forgiven that. The word forgiven means to carry away. You, you've gathered up the iniquity of your people and you have carried it away. From them. And then he says, you have covered all their sin. So on one hand, you've carried it away and you've also covered it. The idea of covering here means like to, to clothe it, to, to put something over, to drape a fabric over it in order to hide it, to conceal it. Okay. What's interesting is that both of these terms both of these terms deal with sin as a reality. Um, God, put it this way, God does not, he doesn't look at their sin as if it's not sin. You see, the, the sin of his people, the iniquity of his people was real. And it had to be carried away. It had to be concealed and covered we didn't, he couldn't just pretend that it didn't exist. See? He couldn't just say, well, you know what? I'm just going to kind of give you a mulligan on that one. We'll just pretend it never happened. No. God carried away their sin. God covered over their sin. He actively dealt with it. See? And the psalmist is looking back in the past and saying, God, this is how you have, you've, you've, you've been in the past. This is what you've done. I think that's important. That we understand that sin must be dealt with. Sin cannot be ignored. 
God does not ignore it. We cannot ignore it. Again, I think it's very popular, very common today for us to minimize the idea of sin. Sin's just mistakes that we make, or sin's just, it's just, that's just who I am, you know? I, I, I have this, this problem, and whatever it is, maybe I've got a temper and I lose my temper, or, or I say, uh, you know, I, I, I say unkind things, or I, I, I tell lies, or I'm dishonest, or, or, or whatever, I have immoral thoughts, or whatever these things are, and we say, well, it's just who I am, you know? It's just, that's just the kind of guy that I am. I can't help it. And that's kind of the way that we minimize sin and we kind of blow it off. Well, it's just who I am. It's not that big of a deal. Well, I submit to you the language here, verse 2, tells us it is a big deal. Because God doesn't ignore it. God can't ignore it. He doesn't treat it like it doesn't exist. One writer that I read this week I thought was interesting gave an illustration of this. He said, you know, if we imagine a husband who has been unfaithful to his wife, has committed adultery, his wife, it doesn't do any good to pretend it didn't happen. To just, okay, we're just going to pretend it never happened and just go on like nothing. That, that doesn't do any good. That doesn't help. The problem is still there. What, what was done was done and the damage it causes is still there. And, and we don't, we don't, it doesn't get better by just going, well, you know, we're just going to pretend it never happened. Well, that's not a solution. Now, on the other hand, what he said there is that the, that the wife could choose to say to her husband, I'm going to allow my love to cover over this. We're not going to pretend it didn't happen, but I'm going to choose forgiveness and love. See, and that could happen. And maybe generously a wife might do that once, twice, I don't know. Psalmist says God has done this over and over. He's covered all their sin. Notice how he said that there at the end of the verse. You covered all their sin. It's like, it's like a flood of the grace and the love of God that has covered their sin. Over and over. Repeatedly, he has carried away and covered all their sin. He doesn't pretend like it doesn't exist. He doesn't just turn his back and ignore it, leaving it just sitting there undealt with. No, God deals with it. And here's how he deals with it. He carries it away and he covers it. This is how God deals with sin. The psalmist is speaking of that there. That's why I think he had that, uh, that word salah there at the end of verse 2. We said before, that's a word that, that can't really easily be translated. We don't have a good... Uh, a good you know, word to translate to, to understand what it means as far as translation is concerned, but it appears to be a word that, that communicates a need for pause, for reflection. Let's stop and reflect on how God deals with sin. God doesn't ignore it. He doesn't just pretend it never happened. No, what God does is He carries it away and He covers it. That's how God deals with sin. Now, Look at verse 3. There's something else here that the psalmist points to here. And this is something else that is inherent in the idea of salvation and in God's favor here. He says, you have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. This is important. Was God right to be angry with 
Israel, with his people for their sin? Was he right to send them away from the land in captivity because of their sin? Was he right to be angry? Again, this is a a picture of God that is very uncomfortable for many people today. We don't like to think of God as angry. We like to think of God as loving and gentle and good and kind. And we don't don't easily uh, see how God's anger can coexist with his love and his kindness. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago in, in Sunday school. We're talking about church history. I mean, go all the way back to the, to the second century. And you, you, even in the second century uh, uh, AD, you have in the church the rise of a movement that basically, led by a man named Marcion, where he basically said that he couldn't reconcile the anger and wrath of God in the Old Testament with the love and mercy of God in the New Testament. And so he, he uh, theorized that they were two different gods. That there was an Old Testament God who was angry and vengeful, and a New Testament God was merciful. And Jesus was the son of the New Testament God, had no connection to the Old Testament God because Jesus could not be connected to the idea of judgment and anger in Marcion's mind. And it led to that kind of division and heresy. And I said, you know, we're still seeing it today in the church. Well, here's the thing, and the psalmist recognizes the anger of God was absolutely justified. The people had sinned. The anger of God to, 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 to cast them away from the land was completely justified. But, God, you have forgiven. You, you, you dealt with the people's sin, and then after you dealt with the people's sin, notice you took away your wrath. It's a very similar term, very similar idea to what I said forgiven, is carrying it away. You, you took away the wrath. You, 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 the wrath that was on them, you took it away from them. But really, the, the powerful picture is the last part of verse 3. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. The words fierceness and anger there are really powerful words. Uh, fierceness is the idea of a burning um, fury. And the word anger actually speaks of the face. The, 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 the picture, the word kind of picture that it paints is someone who is angry and you can see it in their face. Their nostrils are flared out. Their breath is coming. They're very uh, passionate. Their face is probably red and they're, you, you, you can tell they're, they're angry. And the psalmist says, this, God, that was what you looked like. And you looked at us. But you turned away from that. It's, it's like God was, was, was building up the fire of his wrath. And then he stopped adding fuel to the fire. He, he just backed away from his anger. This is God's gracious and merciful action that he took on part of his people. And the psalmist is looking back here. He's remembering what God has done in the past. I think there's, a, there's an analog for us here in this. Have you ever at some point in the past recognized and realized that you were a sinner? 
that you had violated God's law. That what you have done, your, your thoughts, your words, your actions, have been done in rebellion against God, turning away from God, refusing to do what God says, but doing instead what you want. But in spite of your sin, has God forgiven you? Can you look back, like the psalmist, can you look back and say, Lord, you have been merciful. You have been gracious. You forgave my sin. You carried it away and you covered it. And your wrath, your anger that was burning against me, you you turned away from that. You removed that from me. Can you relate to the psalmist here? Can you look back in your own life and see a time where God showed you and, and helped you to see that you were a sinner and realize that the only hope that you had was casting yourself at His mercy and that God forgave your sin. I would just say that if you have never done that, if you've never repented and trusted in Christ, then the condition you're in, well, let me just put it this way, it's the contra, it's, a, it, it, it's, it's everything contrary to what he, what he said here. God is not favorably inclined toward you. God is not taking away your sin. He's not covering over your sin. It's still there. Your sin is still upon you. It's still within you. It's still who you are. That, that, that sinful twist that, that, that bent within your soul, the thing that always messes everything up because you always take whatever good is in your life and you twist it and you pervert it and you use it for yourself and, you, and that, that, that selfishness and that, 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 uh, uh, all of that is still there. And on top of that, God is still angry with you. You see, if you, if you can't, Look back and say, well, there was a time where I realized that I was a sinner and I confessed my sin and I, and, I, and, I, and I asked God for mercy to save me and forgive me and to turn away His wrath. Then you're still under His wrath. And God's face toward you is, is, is building up the fury and the passion of His wrath and His anger toward you. You say, well, that's not very comforting. No not meant to be but it's true this is the condition that we find ourselves in and if you have never trusted christ then you're still in that condition and today is a day for you to cry out and ask for mercy from god that your sin would be forgiven covered over and that his wrath would be taken away now the psalmist continues, because here's the, the, the issue, right? Even if you have trusted Christ, even if you know Christ and you've been forgiven of your sins, your sins have been uh, carried away and covered and God's wrath has been turned away from you. You say, okay, I'm a Christian. I, I, I've, I've, my sins have been forgiven and removed and God is favorably inclined toward me. God loves me and he wants to, he wants to bless me and wants to minister to my life. Well, 
The truth is that there are times where we may not be experiencing that fully. And I think the psalmist is writing from one of those places. Look what he says in verse 4. Because this is the part of the psalm that really threw me for a loop as I began to study. I'm reading these first three verses. I'm thinking, oh, great, God is gracious. God has done these great things. This is a psalm of praise. But then look at verse 4. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. And when I read that, I thought, wait a second. I thought he said that God had turned away from his anger. Why is he now asking God to cause his anger to cease? Well, what happened here? Notice verse 5. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Yahweh, and grant us your salvation. Why is the psalmist, why is he praying for the mercy of God when he has just testified that God has shown mercy to his people? Well, because the fact of the matter is we continue to need the grace of God. It's not a one-time thing. It's not that God can save us and that's it and we never need His grace again. We continue to need the grace of God in an ongoing way in our life. Each day we need His life-giving grace. What we find here in verses 4-7 through is the psalmist's request for God's mercy. You see, the psalmist is very much aware that yes, God has saved in the past, but right now there's a need. Because even though the psalmist and his people have experienced God's salvation in the past, God has done his great work, there is a current and ongoing present struggle. There's a need for God to revive, to restore. The words he used there in verse 4 and uh, verse 6, restore us and revive us. These are our, our, our words of life. Restore us means turn us again to life, O God of our salvation. Cause your anger toward us to cease. There's a a sense here in which the psalmist is recognizing that, that he continues and his people continue to need the grace of God. They need life. They need the, 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 the favor of God to be poured out on them again, just as he had done in the past. And he asks some questions here. It's kind of interesting. Verse 5, he asks two questions. And he asks questions that there is an expected answer for. Right? What answer do do we expect from verse 5? Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? What's the answer that the psalmist is expecting to hear here? Will you be angry forever? No. He's expecting no. An answer to be no. Of course, God's not going to be angry with his people forever. Of course, he's not going to be angry to all generations. Again, if if this psalm is written in the generation of those that return from the exile to the land, then here the psalmist is 
is kind of saying, okay, we get it that you judged our fathers and their generation. They did wickedness and you cast them out of the land and now you've brought us back. But certainly your anger toward them won't be continued toward us, will it? Certainly you'll, you'll be favorable toward us. I mean, that's kind of the idea. And so there's a sense in which the psalmist expects that God's anger will cease, that God will uh, 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 not prolong it. And that, the word prolong there, again, what does it mean? It means to stretch it out. God, you're not going to stretch out your anger beyond the generation of those that have sinned. No, you're going to be favorable to us. So he expects that. Now, the, the question in verse 6 is another question. What, what kind of answer does he expect here when he says, will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? What's the expected answer here? Yes. God, won't you revive us? Give us life that your people may rejoice in you? Yes. Now, this is not a bribe. Okay. Sometimes we want to make deals with God. I want to say, you know, I'm really struggling right now. I'm having a hard time. Things aren't going my way. And, 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 and you know, I, I've not really, maybe not been doing all the right things. I've been, you know, I have some, uh, maybe I've, you know, not been as faithful as I should be or not been doing some things. But, but, okay, God, here's the deal, right? I've got, you know, I've got some areas of need here. Lord, if you will help me out, I will worship you. That's not what this is. Sometimes that's the way we act toward God. We kind of think we can kind of manipulate God or make a deal with God. The psalmist is not doing that. He's not saying, if you revive us again, then we will rejoice in you. Then we'll worship you. What he's saying is there's a natural outcome. There's a natural result that happens when God gives life. When he revives. When he restores. The natural result is his people will rejoice in him. Now here's the thing, right? Um, There's a lot of things we can rejoice in today, right? I mean, you know, if you're so inclined, you can rejoice that the temperatures are going to hit 90 degrees today, first time all year, right? If you're so, most of you aren't inclined to rejoice about that. If you're so inclined, you know, we can rejoice that the Brewers scored 17 runs in the game yesterday. We can, we can rejoice in a lot of We can rejoice in uh, the, the, the blessings and the, the, the things that we have in this life. We can rejoice in the material things that we have. We can rejoice in all sorts of things. We can rejoice in people that we have in our life that we love and relationships that we have. And we can focus on those things. And this maybe even gives us a little bit of a glimpse into what the problem was that the psalmist and his people were facing at that time. Were they rejoicing in God? Or were they rejoicing in something else? Had something else captured their attention? Something else captured their imagination? Something else captured their desires? And those were the things they were rejoicing in. Those were the things they were pursuing. It's possible. And the psalmist says, no, Lord, you turn us again to life. You revive us. You see, then what we're going to rejoice in is you. That's right. That's natural. That's healthy. That's good. 
That's what living people do. That's what, what Christians do. That's what believers do. When God is working in our life, we rejoice in Him. That's what the psalmist is saying here. So he's not trying to manipulate God into doing Him a favor. He's saying, God, your people need to rejoice in You. We need to see You at work. We need to know what you're, that You're working in our life. We need to have Your life infused in us. And our rejoicing would be in You. That's the psalmist's desire here is he's praying and he's requesting the mercy of God. It's so that the people can be redirected so that their thoughts and their minds and their hearts can be focused on God and God alone. Another thing that's interesting to notice here is that he asks, will you not revive us again? Who else but God could revive his people? Who else but God could stir up revival. God alone can do this. Uh, I think it's important for us to take notice of that. Because there has been, at times, in the past, he, even in, in recent, fairly recent memory here in our, in our country, there's been a mindset, and among our churches, a mindset that somehow we can conjure up revival if we just schedule it, put it on the calendar, if we just do kind of the certain right things and there's a checklist and if we get on that checklist, we can somehow bring revival. Well, when the Bible speaks of revival, it's something God does. And it's not so much the saving of sinners as it is the stirring up and the life-giving grace of God infused into His people. That's what the psalmist is praying for here. That's what he's asking for. Not that God would go out and save lost sinners, but that God would stir up His people to restore them to life, to health. Even the ongoing mercy of God is a gift of grace. Notice how he closes this stanza, verse 7. Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. Grant it to us. Give it to us as a gift. He recognizes this is something that God gives. It's not something that can be earned and it's not something that can be manufactured. Well, I think we don't have time to finish today. I'd like to ask you to think about a couple of questions. I already asked you this but, but maybe more importantly, and, and as we see, we're going to get to, we'll have to get to it next week, but understanding how the mercy and truth of God, the righteousness and peace of God are in harmony here in our life. Are you experiencing this life, this life-giving power? Are you experiencing this mercy of God the psalmist is praying for here? Are you experiencing the power of salvation in your life to to overcome sin, to do what's right, to rejoice in the goodness of God? If not, then why not? I mean, the first and obvious question is, do you know the Lord? Have you trusted in Him? 
Have you ever been saved by the grace of God? If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ and been saved and had your sins forgiven, then like the psalmist, that's the foundation. That's where he goes back to. That's the start. That's where everything is grounded in that. If you don't know the Lord, if you've never been forgiven of your sins and had his anger turned away, then you're not going to experience the life. So I would plead with you to trust in Christ today. But even as a Christian, have you prayed for God to stir up life and revival to give you that that spiritual vitality, health in your own spiritual life? The psalmist here prays for it. Do you pray for it? What's more, do you rejoice in God? Or do you rejoice in something else? The psalmist prays that God would give us life that we might rejoice in Him. I hope that you'll maybe examine yourself in light of some of the truths here of this psalm. We're going to look at the rest of it next week and hopefully bring it all together because I think that it's most perfectly illustrated in the person of Jesus Christ. And we'll have to wait till next week to consider that. But I trust that you'll examine yourself today and see what God is doing in your own heart, in your own life. Rejoice that you might rejoice in Him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to see the, the psalmist here as he considers your word, as he meditates on your truth and then draws application. As he looks at the salvation in the past, what you've done in the past, And then his present situation, the need for that ongoing grace in his life. Lord, I fear that sometimes we forget. Well, we've been saved, we've been born again, we've trusted in Jesus. But then we go through life and we forget that we have this need of your grace to give us life and and health as believers. That we would be able to walk with you in obedience. That we would be able to enjoy all of the blessings of your favor. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to examine ourselves today. What is it that we rejoice in? And I pray that we would rejoice in you. I pray that you would give us revival in our hearts. Stir us to life that we might rejoice in you. We give you thanks for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.